When Phil Spencer said he wanted Microsoft to acquire Nintendo, what he meant was he needs a plumber to take care of these leaks. Am I right? Welcome to Triple Click, where we bring the games to you. This week we talk about the news, from Unity's bizarre price change for developers to the leaks of Microsoft's plans for the future Xbox. Oh, and a Nintendo Direct? Woo! I'm Maddie Myers. I'm Jason Schreier. And I'm Kirk Hamilton, and hello. Hello. Hello, hello everybody. Hi. It's us oh, again. Nice to see you both. Back Here for another week of video games. And boy, I just have to say, thank God our emails didn't leak the way Microsoft did. <laughs> well, thank God we, <laughs> we didn't, didn't leak our own accidentally emails. upload them anywhere. Thank God we didn't upload our secret planning documents. <laughs> Every day I wake up and I make sure not to press the big red button mm-hmm. that says leak all triple click <laughs> archives and, and right. messages. Well, Maddie, why, why would you even code a button like that? I that just, just for fun, mostly. Seems really risky. <laughs> yeah, I had some questions when you were doing that. It's just because I, I really want, I want people to know how many times in the past Kirk and I have tried to convince Jason to watch various movies and he just ignores the messages <laughs> over and over okay, again. We have to read it into the public record. It's yeah, people need to know about that. But uh, speaking of which, why why would I be talking about forcing Jason to watch various movies? Well, Mm. I have something important to get to right off the top, which is that we, as a podcast that's part of the Maximum Fun Network, we participate in the tradition, the tradition of yore of releasing bonus episodes to anyone who who deigns to go along from our ancestors. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> <laughs> to anyone who deigns to go to maximumfund.org slash join and become a member. If if you partake in that grand tradition and you become one of us, <laughs> then you get to listen to <laughs> monthly bonus episodes from us and also bonus episodes from other podcasts on the network. And the one that we're going to release this month is about two of my favorite movies that are also both about the topic of AI, uh, and they are the movie Her and the movie Ex Machina, which are both, well, Her is like a romantic drama, and then Ex Machina is like a romantic drama that is actually a horror movie, is maybe how I would describe we'll get into it. it. They're, they're kind of opposite <laughs> movies in a lot they of ways, are. which I think will be two good poles for our conversation to orbit around. And and yet I would say that they ultimately have very similar ideas mm. about AI in the end. Perhaps. Well, we're we're gonna get into or that. Do that they? Be an interesting conversation. <laughs> or do they? Um but yeah it'll be it'll be a great conversation. I love those movies and Jason's never seen them before. Much like say Die Hard, which we also watched for one of our bonus episodes and the Mario live action movie, which we watched just just a little bit. No, that I had seen. That you had seen, seen, of course. Yes. I, I right. didn't mean to lump it in, in that way. I was just listing other movies at that point. Mm-hmm. But it's mm-hmm. it's true. Just listing some movies. Yeah, Let's just listing movies. movies. Um movies. Let's you remember see. some Let's remember some movies we've watched for triple clip bonus episodes. But yeah, maximumfun.org slash join. You can listen to those episodes. We do talk about video games on there too. We do. More more often than not. And uh, that's what we're going to talk about today, at least from the news perspective. Uh, Jason, I'll I'll kick it over to you to lead the app. Yeah, well, so there has been a lot of news over the past <laughs> week, so we're going to do a news roundup today, a good old-fashioned news roundup. Uh, Yeehaw! Can you, yeah, can you insert a, a cowboy, <laughs> yeah, a cowboy uh, sound effect? Sure, right I'll, I'll come yeah. up with something. 
Yeah, we're we're walking in through this this the swinging double doors and oh, okay. So wait, you want by. you want like a record scratch? The piano player stops. Everybody turns and looks at us. I thought we wanted like a whip crack. No, I, yeah, I was thinking the whip crack. News roundup. Yeehaw! We're rounding up some news. <laughs> Way more fun than what I was picturing. But Maddie, but I do like the saloon idea too. We'll save that yes. for another. Uh, As we're doing Wild West cliches, I'll, I'll do them both, and we'll save the, the other second yeah, one for yeah, yeah, yeah. for something all else. All right, all right. So yeah, there's a lot to talk about. Let's start with the big controversy that started last week, which involves the video game technology company Unity. Unity uh, was caught in a firestorm last week. So let me give the kind of short version of the headlines, and then we can get into it from there. So short version is that Unity put out a new policy that is essentially a price hike that says hey if you have uh if you have a game that is made with the unity engine starting in january if you hit a certain number of installs if users of your game install it a certain number of times past a certain threshold we will charge you per install it was uh 20 cents per install for the lowest level it kind of changes there's a lot of complicated aspects of the policy mm-hmm. but that was the gist of it charge the and developer of the game we should we yeah, should yeah, say yeah you yeah. you user of a unity engine um, um, and so, yeah, people freaked the hell out for a number of reasons. First and foremost, because this was just kind of like surprise dropped on everybody and it would affect all re- Unity games no matter what. And it was just kind of, it felt like a punch in the face. It felt like a, a, a violation of their terms of service. There were a bunch of things left unclear that Unity then have to cla- had to clarify in subsequent days. It was a communications disaster, like potential Harvard Business School study in like... Uh, how to not communicate a new policy. And where we're at now is yesterday, so Monday, I reported that Unity had an all-hands meeting where they were talking about potential changes, which they haven't yet officially announced, but one of them was like a cap on the number of, uh, on the amount of money that you could, that you that you have to pay to do the due, due to the new policy. Um, another one was uh, uh, that like the policy wouldn't apply retroactively, so like installs would only start counting in January. But it's all just become one big mess. We've seen a lot of people get mad about it. A lot of people switch over to different engines or threaten to leave the Unity engine, which is a complicated thing, especially if you have a game that's like years in development on Unity at this point. And it's just been one big disaster. And the long and short of it is this means that Hollow Knight Silksong will once again be delayed another 40 years. Um, <laughs> Maddie, why don't you kick us off? What did you, did you did you see this uh, this controversy? What did, what was your take on this whole uh, series of events? I find this to be a shocking policy to implement from Unity's perspective, and I completely understand why game developers would be upset by it. Even though, from a financial perspective, I understand the logic. It's the kind of decision that. Were I, for some reason, put in charge of Unity, I wouldn't make. Obviously, it's it's expensive to, in, from an energy standpoint, to install video games. Like, that is the logic here. The cold calculating logic is, yes, the more people install a video game, the more energy is is used in that transaction. And that is that's how Unity is thinking of it. But the result is that you're making game developers feel like the more successful their game is, the more they'll be 
punished for that, which is a, a pretty dicey proposition for kind of indie devs and also kind of double A developers who are dealing with like a pretty risky financial situation in terms of how much they can actually put into their game and in continuing to develop it. We've talked about that quite a bit on the show in the past, like how, how close to the line some of those double A and single A developers are in terms of financing. So I just, like, for example, Cult of the Lamb, which is an indie game that we talked about on this show, they did a joke post about how they were going to delete their game. And people immediately believed it because the situation was so fraught, like that reactions were so high that people were like, oh, my God, am I not going to be able to play Cult of the Lamb anymore? And they had to, like, put out, like, a long TikTok where they were like, we were kidding. We aren't actually <laughs> deleting the game. That's However, a good way to juice sales. It, I mean, <laughs> I don't know if that works. That'd be interesting to ask them. But they did have to be like, listen, we wrote a joke joke post on the Internet. We aren't deleting our game. However, like, the Unity decision is going to really impact developers like us and, and developers, developers of our size and also switching to a different engine is extraordinarily expensive. So yeah, I just, I don't know what's going to happen next. I, this is like the most I've, I've had to talk about unity at work in a while though. <laughs> I feel like we don't often think about reporting on game engines and like a lot of them don't have game name recognition in the headline, but unity sure does now. So there's that, mm. I guess. Yeah. Worth noting, yeah. Unity went public in 2020 and since then has been just stepping on one rake after another under CEO. John Riccatello, who was formerly the CEO of EA, where he oversaw the company under its whole worst company in America award winning years and uh, really oversaw the, and the era of like microtransactions. And I think he once said in, in a investor call or something like that some video has him on tape saying that uh uh they should uh charge players or they could charge players per number of mm. bullet they use in a shooting game another great idea yeah just throwing it <laughs> all around kirk you are not as in touch as with the with the gaming news world as Manny and i are these days but have you seen the unity controversy what have you kind of made of it yeah, I didn't hear about it when it happened um, and then was talking to some friends who mentioned the discourse and I said, oh, what's what's going on? Uh-huh. And it's always a wonderful sort of blessed <laughs> feeling for me when someone mentions the discourse and I have no idea what they're talking <laughs> about. Yeah. Um, so then I, I got the short version of it and was, yeah, a little bit in disbelief that this was really happening. I think maybe it would be helpful for our listeners for me to ask the two of you for some clarification on how this works because I think like I think I understand it but also the specifics of it are worth really understanding so my understanding is that you pay a license you used to pay for a license to use the Unity engine to make your game and then you release the game and you sell it is that correct? Well, okay, so it's a little convoluted because Unity, like everything these days, has different tiers of membership. There's like personal, pro, whatever. And so it really depends on like what scale of game that you're you're making, um, where and what what sort of category. Let's say say pro, like your cult of the lamb or something. How does that work exactly? Like the, the how do you pay Unity or when do you pay Unity? Under the old model. So yeah, I mean essentially if you are uh you are making a game under 
Unity, you are paying uh, a yearly or a monthly fee to Unity. And um, I believe that Unreal, which is Unity's biggest competitor, is a similar thing, but Unreal also has a form of revenue share, and this is kind of Unity's way of of uh, uh, doing its own form of revenue share, except in a way more convoluted, way more potentially exploitable way. And I think that, like... Um, one of the reasons that the cap on uh, potential money that Unity can take from this thing is going to be the solution that mollifies people or to the best that Unity can at this point is because uh, it, it doesn't, in theory, like it makes sense to do some sort of revenue share agreement because that's what the, the precedent that Unreal has set is. It's just that the way that Unity announced this and rolled it out was just so um, ham-fisted. It was just like... Uh, uh, like people immediately have the question, what happens if you're part of Xbox Game Pass and people download it millions of times? Like Mm -hmm. you're charged for those downloads. Like the idea of installs, sorry, installing millions of times. The idea of installs like translating to revenue doesn't make sense because it doesn't, especially in the free to play world where uh, a lot of people can just download games and install them and never pay a dime. So immediately it just didn't really fit. And a lot of people were like, why didn't you just announce a revenue share instead of this whole cockamamie scheme? Um, Mm. But does that answer your question, Greg? Well, that yes, more, more than, (laughs) more even than I needed because I, the second part of the question that I think is just something that people should keep in mind. The important distinction is the one you're talking about, which is per install. Mm -hmm. So they're changing it to say the number of times the game is installed, you then pay us some amount per install rather than revenue sharing like Unreal does where you just pay us some percentage of your income. And that does strike me as just, I, I don't really understand why they're doing it that way because that would freak me out. I'm thinking like the closest thing I can think of from the world of music where I'm a little more familiar with publishing would be right now you pay a licensing fee to use Pro Tools if you want to record with it. You don't have to pay a licensing fee ongoing if you recorded your album with Pro Tools for it to remain up for sale. So that's a little different already. But this would be like them saying, okay, now instead of paying, you know, I don't know, some percentage of your revenue for us allowing you to use these tools, you have to pay per play. Mm -hmm. And if there's just like, bots auto playing or something or you get onto some Spotify playlist you would immediately be scared because you'd be like oh god I'm about to get millions of plays and that means I'm going to be on the hook for a lot more money. Mm-hmm. Yeah it's not that's not exactly the comparison because it's not per play of the game it's per, like most games you just install it once like that's not uh, a direct uh, the bigger issue I think is that there were so many questions like so many holes in this like what happens if I am part of a Reddit brigade and I want to like go after you. And so I have everybody like uninstall like the game and then reinstall it times, deliberately yeah. to harass you. Like, well, and right. What I'm getting at is not that the two things are directly comparable, but that the approach of saying you're responsible for something other than just a percentage of your revenue, which mm-hmm. is how basically how t- revenue sharing has worked since time immemorial. It's yeah. very easy because you can just look at the amount of money you made mm-hmm. and say, okay, well, we're on the hook for this percentage for licensing this software. Like, that's really straightforward. The minute it's something that's like plays or installs in the case of these games, it's something that's out of your control in a way that just seems to me as a developer or as a musician or as whatever, as a person creating things, like that is a really scary and really stressful proposition and seems to me to be the fundamental problem of this whole thing. Just from the outside, when I first heard about it, I was like, that seems like the problem. If they want to make more money off of their engine, cool. They can come up with some way to do it that isn't like 
doesn't have this fundamental unknown factor mm-hmm. yeah. that just seems like it introduces a lot of chaos. Yeah, yeah. 100%. No, and I think you're spot on. Again, okay. punishes success. Like, there's even a different way to message it that is fundamentally the same thing that makes it clear to people that when you have, when you are making enough money from your game, at that point, we're going to take a bigger cut. And, mm. like, maybe the way that they would calculate that would be functionally very similar. But by describing it in the way that they did they've made it seem terrifying for anyone to install your Unity game, yeah. which is like well, the opposite of what you want. Right. Well, I mean, <laughs> installs don't equal revenue. Like, they're not the same thing. Right, exactly. Yeah, specifically punishing for success in the free-to-play mobile space, which is where it's going to hit the hardest. I mean, yep. Cult of the Lamb, like a game like that, you're not really, maybe you install it on multiple machines, but that's so rare. Like, realistically, this policy isn't going to hurt them that much. But I think the bigger problem here, and then we'll get on to the news story, but at least in my opinion and you guys can offer your takes but my my the bigger problem is that they've just torched their brand because they essentially oh, yeah. said like we care about you so little we're just gonna throw this policy out it's gonna be half-assed it's gonna change everything you know it's gonna affect already existing users that are like trusting us to to go with like with the unity engine here and it just like immediately they lost all trust with so many people that i'm not sure they can ever get it back and then like in in practically i don't actually think that this policy is gonna financially hurt that many people if it hurts anybody really it's more that they just completely like bungled the the rollout and the messaging and the the entire execution of this so badly that it just feels like from now on unity will just be associated with chaos and john riccatello like trying to steal people's wallets yeah i will say that my reaction when i heard this was that is never gonna happen that was the first thing i said i was like when are they gonna undo this well it is gonna happen just with with extreme like caveats and yeah the thing people are describing though yeah is not going to just seems very unlikely to me that this like apocalypse is going to happen to every indie game or if it did then every single developer would stop using unity which is like pretty much what the reaction was to the news which would Uh cause it to cease to exist like those are kind of the two (laughs) outcomes is like either unity goes out of business for making the work decision ever or they come up with some other more logical way to approach this and implement some changes that actually Makes sense to people. Which will probably happen. Um, speaking of big corporations stepping on rakes, let's talk about <laughs> what happened to Microsoft this here. week. So early on Tuesday morning, late Monday night, a uh, people discovered that Microsoft had accidentally uploaded a treasure trove of documents to the FTC court record website and that they were all public and could be downloaded by anybody. Mm-hmm. And suddenly, on Tuesday, it became Xbox Leak Day, and so many different emails and PowerPoint presentations and slides and all sorts of delicious um, corporate shenanigans leaked on the internet. Yeah, it was was fascinating. I mean, some of the the highlights were um, hardware plans for the next few years, which included um, uh, an all digital version of the Xbox Series X coming next year and like some next gen console in 2028 that is like hybrid with cloud stuff and who knows uh, we're talking years away now so unlikely that it'll actually be what's on paper right now but still well, also a more advanced xbox controller with updated haptics oh yeah oh yeah trying to compete with the, the dual sense yeah. Yeah. well the haptics are pretty cool that's why the dual the new yeah, ps5 man. controller yeah. is 
is cool. Um, and I thought the most interesting part, other than like some Phil Spencer emails and seeing how he talks to to his team in private and and exchanges with other executives, I thought that was interesting. But the other interesting part was the Bethesda lineup, like the entire lineup for ZeniMax uh, games over the next few years, um, which was a little out of date. I think this was uh, from like 2020, and so a lot of the years were totally wrong. I think they had Starfield coming out in, in 2021 or something like that fiscal year 2021 but still it had some gems on there uh dishonored 3 uh an oblivion remaster a fallout 3 remaster it's like they listened to our episode from a few weeks ago and we're like hey we should remaster those games um i guess they didn't they didn't hear the part where we said oblivion was boring and morrowind yeah was boring. No, they yeah, were probably yeah. they were probably reading the triple click discord in uh-huh. which there are many oblivion likers so regardless games. clearly they're very up to date on triple click just mm-hmm. everything yeah, yeah. Well, we can uh, fairly assume that. And also, it was uh, they time travel back to 2020 to create this presentation. So split screen. They've been listening to split screen. Right, you know, Pete Hines totally. is out there listening to split screen. He definitely <laughs> is. And then like a bunch of uh, code names. Some of these, I believe, are canceled games. Um, some of them are not going to happen. Some of them are going to happen. Like there's a game in there called Project Kestrel that I believe is the Zenimax Online Studios, the makers of Elder Scrolls Online. Kestrel is their their new game. Um, I believe. I believe that. Uh, I believe that it might actually be called Kestrel. I guess we'll see about that, but the code name is definitely Kestrel. Um, and yeah, a bunch of other stuff. I mean, uh, Project Hibiki is on there. I believe that is Hi-Fi Rush, which already came out. Um, yeah, so what did you guys make of uh, all these leaks? Did you read through any interesting Phil Spencer emails? Did you see anything that Yeah, uh, you wanted to buy Nintendo. Wasn't that an old Jason Trier prediction of of years gone by that that Xbox would work would buy Nintendo or attempt to have Nintendo in its in its corner? I feel like maybe I sounds sounds like a, one, one of the when we did the one bonus crazy, wild predictions. crazy wild predictions. Yeah, it was. Mm-hmm. I, I think it was like your you. right your super outlandish one. Mm-hmm. I was in interested to see that one but yeah mostly i just i mean what do you guys think about the all digital xbox like talk about the xbox thing that will never die i it really has me going back in time 10 years and thinking about all those arguments that we all got to have about digital only consoles like it's coming now you apparently every conversation i've had with like someone people who know things at game companies are like you would not believe how few people are buying physical yeah. these days it's yeah. like like the, the industry has I already it. changed it yeah okay you guys would believe it but they're like <laughs> well, like the numbers are like it's it's even it's like the digital transformation has come much quicker than a lot of people anticipated so mm-hmm. it doesn't shock me that they would be going all digital like i think that's i think maybe it's it's probably less than 10% or less than 20% of people are buying physical these I know. I just also think that that's happening at the same time as everyone realizing that we've all made a horrible mistake because our digital libraries are deteriorating and often not as comprehensive as they might have been if we'd been collecting Blu-ray discs all this time. And <laughs> I, I'm really sensing that pain, like seeing games either get delisted or like, I mean, obviously we're not, we're not talking about Netflix here. We don't need to get into that, but, but goodness knows a lot of things that used to be available to me easily 10 years ago in the golden age of, of streaming where everything was cheap and, and easily available. It's not so these days. And I just, I'm I'm feeling that anxiety already of like, oh, if, if everything goes digital, then what's going to happen to video game preservation and the actual ability to play the games that come out in that digital only era, but like 20 years after that, you know, assuming we aren't, you know, 
busy with the water wars and everything at that point. <laughs> and, well, we'll need a distraction. We'll right, need to play right, exactly. old video and, games. And if only we had them on disc, because at that point, exactly. all we'll have left is like our deteriorating PS5s. Yeah, well, the internet infrastructure we'll will be totally dismantled. Well, exactly, so we'll right. Yeah. Exactly what I'm saying. We need mm-hmm. the disc for the post-apocalyptic wasteland that we're, we're going to be <laughs> entering into. Mm-hmm. So, I yeah. do wonder if, if video game collecting is going to become kind of like vinyl collecting. I where... think it is. I, I feel like I can already sense that because of... Uh, a couple days before this leak happened, um, well, I guess there, it's not a couple days. It was only on Monday. This has been such a long week already. On Monday, <laughs> one of my coworkers was talking about how he doesn't have a Blu-ray player because he had bought the PS5 that doesn't have a disc drive. Because he was like, at the time, I just figured, you know, well, get whatever PS5 you can get. And now he doesn't have a Blu-ray player. And he's like, I don't know how to watch Blu-rays. And I was thinking of him when I was reading about the digital only Xbox. And I'm like well, what about people who want to watch movies and they actually look really good or people who want to play games that aren't off of subscription services and the games actually look as good as they can look? I mean, I'm I'm not even just thinking of the preservation angle, but also just the fact that sometimes you want something to actually look good. And that's where the vinyl record of it all comes in, Kirk, where Mm. I'm like, yeah, I think that collector sensibility does matter when it comes to things actually operating as intended and installing and running off of the disc you know so my question is are the future like the physical game collections of future people like jason of your kids Mm. when they are you know and it's the hip thing to have a physical collection the way that we have vinyl collections now is it going to be the same as vinyl collections these days where everyone has the same like 16 Joni Mitchell records and the same <laughs> kind of Earth, Wind, and Fire. Like, because everything is from list. the 60s and the 70s when <laughs> records were mass produced. So right. basically everyone will have like the 2008 Prince of Persia for yep. the Xbox 360 <laughs> on a physical copy. Yes. But like no one is going to have, I don't know, Bloodborne or Cyberpunk. Like there okay, will be so no physical copies of Cyberpunk. It's interesting. I will say that one thing to Xbox's credit, they put all their games on PC and if you want to preserve things, PC is the way to go because like I'll Ultimately, other than online only games or games with like heavy DRM, you can ultimately play anything forever on PC. Like you could get emulated ROMs for pretty much anything from 30 years ago. And while I'm not pro pirating new games, I am very much pro preserving games that can't be bought anywhere else. And Mm -hmm. so I think that to Xbox's credit, unlike PlayStation and Nintendo, which release games only on their consoles, um, I think releasing everything on PC helps in the in the great preservation wars. But yes, when the internet goes offline and we're all lost forever, then mm-hmm. that'll change. We're just things, carrying but... hard drives around. Yeah, and yeah, yeah, yeah. You just exactly. gotta make it to Roms, Chris Grant's bunker where he's got like a huge trove of every uh-huh. copy of PlayStation All Stars. Right. So after the water wars, it'll be like just gotta make it all the way to the eastern seaboard, and you'll find the guy who has the hard drive, so you can finally play Battletoads <laughs> again. You can play. Ration um, I have play. a couple other thoughts on on this Xbox leak. Um, one is just that I'm excited that Dishonored 3 is going to happen. Yes. I hope that Arcane is allowed to get back to making those kinds of games because that's be cool. what they're really good at. And I'll play the hell out of that when it comes out. Yeah, I wonder if that is, I wonder how real that is. I guess we'll see, but I wonder. Yeah, it was just exciting to hear the yeah, words no, I know, I know, 3. I know. So what I, I do know Oblivion Remaster is definitely is 100% real. That's a little sooner uh, than later. Dishonored 3, mm, I don't know. You guys I, heard I, it here. Jason Trier says it's 100% real. <laughs> that's a really high stakes <laughs> sentence, Jason. <laughs> Are you sure you want to say I'm Well, that uh, 100% <laughs> real doesn't mean like it won't be canceled. It just means it's, re- okay, it's really enough. happening. <laughs> mm-hmm. All right. 
Um, last thing is just uh, there have been some headlines about internal descriptions of Baldur's Gate 3 by yes. Microsoft oh, yeah. and how they yeah, underestimated yeah, yeah. that game. Mm-hmm. I think that this was something, this was like an interesting news story that I've been a little bit aware of over the last couple of weeks is just these small indicators that Microsoft misunderstood how big Baldur's Gate 3 was going to be. Mm-hmm. So there's this second story that's unrelated to this leak, but that's that Baldur's Gate 3 did not come out on Xbox when it came out on PlayStation, not for any exclusivity deal, but because Larian could not get the split screen working on the Xbox Series S, which is the less powerful Xbox. And as a result, because Microsoft has a requirement that there be parity between the Series S and the Series X, Larian wasn't going to be able to release the game because they just the Series S is less powerful. It couldn't do split screen co-op. So what are you going to do? So f- the game came out on PS5, this massive game, one of the best games of the year, one of the greatest RPGs I've ever played. Just finished it last night, by the way. Amazing ending. <laughs> really great game. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not on Xbox. And that really, it, it wound up being almost compounded by the fact that Starfield is an Xbox exclusive, mm. and also Starfield got, let's say, much more mixed reviews than Baldur's <laughs> Gate 3, and so it's turned into a weird proxy, like, not a proxy console war, but like a false <laughs> console war, yeah, yeah, yeah. where like, because pe- so many times, like, critics who just played Baldur's Gate 3 will say something about Starfield, mm-hmm. oh man, the writing and this is nowhere near as good, and then people get mad who are feeling that kind of console loyalty mm-hmm. about a game that's not on their console, even yeah. though the reason it's not on their console is because Microsoft was being inflexible, and then then Microsoft changed their policy for Larian right. to allow the game to come to Xbox so yeah. they can get this massive hit out. Anyways, all of that is to say there's a, there is some language in here that could be interpreted as Microsoft basically predicting that Baldur's Gate 3 is some niche bullshit that no one cares about. Yeah, well, so specifically, so so the context here is that there is a uh, a chart essentially thing. that is like yeah. um, how much uh, Microsoft would expect to pay a publisher, how much a publisher would be expected to ask for for uh, Game Pass day and date. And it's like Star Wars, Jedi Survivor, $300 million, something crazy like that. Assassin's Creed Mirage, $100 million. Baldur's Gate 3, $5 million. <laughs> $5. And then the description <laughs> yeah. of it is like second run Stadia PC game. That, yeah, like that. I can't. Second that, run Stadia PC RPG. I read that and there were not enough fire emojis yeah, to add so to it, truly. I can't believe. I, I mean, poor one out for the Stadia believe. employees who had to read that news today. Like, they're out there being like, well, you know what's what? funny <laughs> is that so when we were at Kotaku, things have changed, but when we were at Kotaku, back when traffic stats were public, you could really, you could get a lot of info out of like, how many people were looking at articles about specific games, you could get an indication of how well those games would do. And I remember lots of Baldur's Gate 3 stuff doing extraordinarily well. And That was the closest thing we had to Nielsen ratings was the big board. It really really did tell you, oh, this game's got heat. People People care, care about, about this yeah. game. It was a good way of knowing. Yeah, I mean, it's it's not public, but even at Polygon internally, we knew we planned for that, and we were like, oh, Baldur's Gate three. We're gonna have to gird our loins. Yeah, Zelda came out this year, but whatever. Right. Get rest up, kiddos. We we all got to get in on Baldur's Gate. So like, I don't know what Phil. I don't know what he was doing. You also have to gird your loins because it's a really horny game. I know, um, and you gotta decide what you're gonna gird your loins. Especially with. pre-patch. You, just, you heard they patched the horniness out, right? They dehornified all of your party members. One, one more quick thing. One more quick thing before we move on. Uh, Phil Spencer put out a statement uh, on Twitter 
we've sorry on X the website formerly yeah known what, as what are you saying on what uh, <laughs> that's for you Kurt um, <laughs> we've seen the conversation around old emails and documents it is hard to see our team's work shared in this way because so much has changed and there's so much to be excited right now and in the future we will share the real plans when we are ready mm, the real I love, plans we've seen the conversation around old emails and documents what a what a sentence mm-hmm. anyway let's keep moving on <laughs> there's some other headlines to get to first real quick Final Fantasy 7 re Rebirth gets a trailer. Man, that looks so sick. Oh, it's such a good trailer. <laughs> Remember when trailer. Vincent Fan- was there? That was yeah, cool. An official <laughs> trailer for fan service. Very there were like nine yeah. fan service moments in that trailer that yeah. made me yell. Well, there were a lot of, there were so many snapshots. Remember when, when Tifa and Eris and, and Yuffie were on the train together? That was great. And then Cloud yep. was on a Segway. Well, there were so many little shots that are like, oh my God, that's Cosmo Canyon. Oh, that's Costa yeah. del Sol. Like just little yep. moments. Oh, oh there's Chocobo racing. Yep, oh my God, yep. the boxing mini Vincent game. Valentine in his crypt was the moment for me where I was like, wow, this is just going to have it all. Just phenomenal stuff. <laughs> um, one quick note, the developers say that the game will end at the Forgotten City, um, which is, I believe, the end of disc one in the original PlayStation yes. release. And so uh, it remains to be seen how they handle the finale, but I'm very excited to see what they do. It's so funny, like, after playing Remake and the twist ending of that game yeah. and the revelations of that game, this really feel like I'm so excited for this. Like, Me too. More than and I ever thought I would be. I'm even more amazed by the people who have only played Remake and don't know the plot of the original game. And uh-huh. to each and every one of those people, I just have to hold both their hands in mind and be like, at least look it up because you're just yeah, going you to get more and more confused. You're just going to be confused. It's a sequel. Should, yeah. Yeah. Well, no, I think you should because this is essentially yeah. a sequel to Final Fantasy VII. Yeah, exactly. Right. Like, it's it's not, despite the name, quite a remake. Yeah. Like, that's well, why this is called, Final Fantasy VII Rebirth. Rebirth. That's yeah. right. Yeah. Even that's right. So you gotta you gotta know the original story and whatever happens. I may story. have immediately I may or may not have immediately downloaded uh, Final Fantasy VII remake on my PC to replay it in preparation mm-hmm. for Rebirth. understandable. It was a cool trailer. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> there was also Nintendo Direct. Uh, some cool stuff got announced. Princess Peach Showtime. So uh, it looks great. I just watched the it trailer really for cool. that. I missed the direct. Uh, uh, it looks so fun. Yeah, this is a game. So this is a game for anyone who didn't see it. Starring Princess Peach. Yes. Where Princess Peach is putting on a show at a theater. The whole thing that takes place on stage. That's right. In classic Mario format, it's on stage. Yes, and yes, yes, yes. Like yes. Mario 3. Yep. And, um, and uh, Batty shows up and takes over and she has to save the show. So the whole thing is like costume changes mm-hmm. for new abilities. Yes. And it's all staged with like set design and lighting and mm-hmm. props and everything is moving around and shifting. So it's got this kind of really incredibly cool look. I I, I was amazed by that trailer. That game looks really, really fun. Super Super cool. Yeah, um, I'm really excited to play it. Paper Mario Thousand Year Door is getting a remake. Uh, that is pretty cool. That's a great game that I think mm-hmm. you guys will enjoy uh, when the yeah, remake comes out. Yeah, that just topped some poll I saw online of the best Mario story by a mile, mm-hmm. like a, some reader poll, and that made me excited because I've definitely never played it mm-hmm. and would love Same. to. There's I, some I good stuff like in there. Mario. A lot of cool side characters. Um, there's this hilarious kind of like series of, um, I don't know if they're like, they're like, Inter- intermissions with uh, where you control Bowser or you control Peach. No, Bowser. You control Bowser trying to go after Peach. And then uh, the the funniest thing is that you run into Luigi at every city and he he just talks about his adventures and they're just like increasingly like wild and more oh, far and and but You never see anything. Yeah. Yeah, it's all off screen. Right. Amazing. It's fantastic. I love that. And then there was a video game called Unicorn Overlord. Mm-hmm. 
I watched the trailer for that. So this is from Vanillaware, <laughs> and it's another sort of classic, uh, classic RPG. It's a strategy game. Good yeah. title. Well, it's though. a strategy. It is RPG. funny that it's called Unicorn Overlord. Yeah, what a name. <laughs> What a I name. would have thought that'd be like a devolver, like a semi. Yeah, doesn't it sound yeah, like unicorn that? Overlord, indie yeah. game where you have an in- unicorn army that you have like a farm uh-huh. and you're breeding them and for combat. The unicorn and then unicorn Overlord. Overlord. But this is 100% serious. I like, like robot unicorn attack, I suppose. Unicorns are a kind of ironic instrument in that, like, lolcats <laughs> sort of 2008 era way. Did you, so, watching it live, they didn't see the title until the end. So, the entire trailer is like two minutes of them talking about this, like, high fantasy yeah. stuff. Dead serious, right. deadpan. And then at the end, Unicorn Overlord. And I just cracked up when I heard that. It was I mean, right. You expect it to be called like Fields of the Magisterium or something. <laughs> yeah, something like yeah, that. Yeah, but like Magisterium is in all caps and then there's a colon and it's like, remember the Titan beginning and then it, there's like another colon and then it's like prologue. <laughs> Maddie, you know your JRPGs. Yeah, prologue. Prologue 5.6. For a lot um, of reasons. One thing I'll say is that like uh, Vanilla Wars last game, 13 cents. Sentinels. I wasn't super hot on that game, but the mm-hmm. worst. But yeah. but there were some good parts. The one part that wasn't good was the strategy. Like game I had play, the same so. thought. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I was so, like, I was into the story, but not into the game part. That was so the worst like, part of it. And so for them to make yeah. a strategy game, but yeah. who knows? I mean, it looked cool. It looked gorgeous. Also. And it could be totally like different people designing it. Um, but what about the title Thirteen Sentinels? That's what I thought you were going to say. Wasn't good because the full title's also. Really weird. Aegis Rim, yeah, is that right? Aegis know. Rim, yeah. Anyway, it's fine. Yeah. I don't know. Unicorn Overlord. 13 Sentinels on its own is a fine name. Um, yeah, yeah. Unicorn like Overlord 13 Assassins. is not. <laughs> I mean, there's so many things wrong with it. First of all, it's it hard rules. to say. It's like so many. Uh, a, a name shouldn't have so many syllables. Unicorn Overlord. I think, I think that it's memorable, though. I'm going to say that it is a memorable name. Mm-hmm. Unicorn Overlord, I'll remember that that's name. Yeah. Which it's got that going for it. That's like fair. Some games are just not Unicorn memorable and that's Overlord. their problem. I think it's fun to say Unicorn Overlord. There's something about like the O at the end of Unicorn going yeah. leading into the O. It's a o little bit of Overlord. a rural juror. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, the rural juror. Nice. Um, <laughs> Couple more headlines. These two are kind of connected. Layoffs everywhere, despite this being such a humongous year for games yeah. and game sales. And Embracer falling apart just a couple of years after it bought up the entire double A games industry. It is laying people off, shutting down studios, shut down Volition, the makers of Saints Row. It's trying to sell or spin off Gearbox, the makers of Borderlands. Just a disaster, like trash fire of a company. And layoffs, I mean, Immortals of Avium, that game, speaking of titles, that game. <laughs> came out like three weeks ago under EA and yeah. I guess it sold so poorly they laid off half the studio like within less than a month later which is just pathetic imagine like working your ass off to ship this game and then you get laid off before you can even like see how it does in the mm-hmm. long term like, or have a chance to potentially update it or like make any change to it in response yeah. to what happened or anything yeah. yeah god what a disaster but yeah it's just a lot of, a lot of bad industry news alongside all the exciting stuff unfortunately it's just one of those years, and I know this is kind of a, a, a worldwide problem, or at least countrywide problem, with uh, with the economic. Uh, I don't know. Is it a downturn? Who knows these days? But a lot of a lot of problems, least. a lot of turbulence, and yeah. games industry is no no exception. Um, it's a bummer. What have you guys been been making of all this? Yeah, I mean, it, it is confusing in light of just how many incredible video games have been coming out this year. Like, just from the coverage side, I feel like it's it's been hard for us to keep up in a good way. Like, it's, it's nice when there's a ton of really great stuff to cover. And 
that's always exciting at work. And then that to have that be also juxtaposed with like, oh, there's an economic downturn supposedly. And then also to see all these layoffs, it's confusing. Cause I'm like, really? Cause I feel like everyone I know is buying video games and, and playing video games and talking about how great they are. So I don't understand. Mm -hmm. It always just feels like a mismatch to me, but I'm not an economist and I don't know what money even is. So that what is, be yeah, what is economy? Who knows? Yeah, I don't know. Well, I get that feeling too, <laughs> that feeling that there's a disconnect between the reality on the ground. Yeah. And it's just, it's that disconnect between the logic of the real world and even the logic of the market that we engage with as consumers, yeah. where it's like, you want to buy good things and you buy them, and the market of investment and Wall Street yeah. and the stock yeah. market, and which growth. is just a totally different growth. logic yeah. that works on a different, just a whole, it's this weird alien thing that that just doesn't really make sense so then you see stuff that doesn't feel like it should be happening mm -hmm. uh and we we're seeing more and more and more of it because uh you know the acquisitions are getting bigger and bigger the people holding you know people buying companies are motivated by increasingly abstract it's perplexing to me as a civilian mm -hmm. yeah motivated by watching the 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 line on the graph go up into the right uh just the eternal chase right, growth. right and just the things that require that to happen are increasingly arcane mm -hmm. it seems to me it's not as simple anymore as just i don't know make a cool thing and like yeah, sell make it a cool to thing people. And sell it, yeah. it's like so far beyond that that it, it can be really hard to get your head around yeah it's, for sure yeah, it's nutty. And like even the companies that seem to be fine are like laying people off. I heard last week that, you know, you guys know the company Probably Monsters. They they have a lot of big investments. They're like a game company. They were started by um, uh, Harold Ryan, who was the CEO of Bungie for a while. Um, oh, okay. They're kind of they're like a semi publisher. They they operate a few different game studios. They let off a ton of people um, a few days hmm. ago. Um, all the big publishers, 2K, EA, EA laid off a bunch of people at Bioware a few weeks ago. I mean, Bioware, like one of the most recognizable studios. And especially like that was especially tragic because Bioware, of course, made Baldur's Gate 1 and 2. And here's yeah. Baldur's Gate 3, the smash success. And like the company also known for making great RPGs. It, lost 50 people including uh, uh some of the people some people who have been there for two decades like it's just it's really yeah. it's really just mm -hmm. i saw some of those notes from the narrative folks at bioware who mm. got let go and that sucks Oof. like that just seems like a like terrible people to lose at a yeah game studio that's known for these great stories and that has been sort of suffering in the story department lately mm -hmm. who knows why they did that it's, yeah yeah ridiculous and you know what happens when when you like the layoffs not only do you lose people the people who are remaining have survivor's guilt they're not going to work as hard they're not going to be able to function at full capacity and they're expected to do the jobs of the people who got laid off in addition mm -hmm. to their own jobs it's just like mm -hmm. it's so short-sighted and I mean, anytime a big company that can afford to not do layoffs does layoffs, it is almost, it's like always just shooting themselves in the foot and like uh, hurting their reputation, hurting morale, hurting people. It's just, it's, it never makes sense. Like mm -hmm. layoffs in general just don't make sense unless you're really like a, a, an independent studio that is funded by like your owner's pockets and you literally cannot afford to keep paying salaries, but still it's... Or, or to introduce that twisted Wall Street logic. It makes sense in a way if you can demonstrate that by cutting that cost, you're going to increase your projected revenue. And then that allows you to get to some kind of goal that you're trying to reach. Like in that investor logic, the sort of thing, like those considerations, those longer term considerations don't always apply. And that's kind of how we wind up 
watching these things where we're like smacking our foreheads and being like, I don't get why you would ever do this. Yeah, mm-hmm. it makes sense in a world where all that matters is the next fiscal year instead of the next five fiscal years. That's right. the that's the fundamental like long and short of this is just like the most short sighted because executives are incentivized to only think about the short term. Like you can't it's like being a GM of a sports team or something like that. Like you're on the hot seat if you can't make winning moves in the next two years. So why would you think about five or ten years from now? Mm-hmm. It's all just like this perverse system that uh, we all got to live in, I suppose. That's <laughs> late stage capitalism. Though, for I don't you. know. I mean, we kind of talked about this with Tears of the Kingdom a few times, where like having a game where a lot of people who worked on it have been there for a while can actually still be pretty financially successful. So, like, it would just be nice if, like, maybe a couple of these executives would. Just give that a little ponder at, at think night. Think about it. Yeah, yep. just think about just it. Think That's about all. It. Yep. Think just about think it. About all of you out there listening, <laughs> give it a thought. Well, yeah, we know you, these executives you in are the listening. C-suite. They're yeah. all listening. They're all big so, triple click listening. I do, I do assume, yeah, I, I, I'm guessing that at least one C-suite executive at a major gaming company is secretly listening to mm-hmm. triple click. Right in, triple click. The one, the one who plays games, <laughs> exactly. like the one C-suite executive <laughs> who actually plays video games listens to our show. Bobby all right. Kotick, really? Okay. Yeah, oh, Bobby, good old Bobby. Why don't we take a break and then we'll come back for one more thing. If you need a laugh and you're on the go, try S-T-O-P-P-O-D-C-A-S-T-I. Hmm. Were you trying to put the name of the podcast there? Yeah, I'm trying to spell it, but it's tricky. Let me give it a try. Okay. If you need a laugh and you're on the go, call S-T-O-P-P-P-A-D-I. It'll never fit. No, it will. Let me try. If you need a laugh and you're on the go, try S-T-O-P-P-P-D-C-O-O. Oh, we are so close. Stop podcasting yourself. A podcast from MaximumFun.org. If you need a laugh, and you're on the go. I'm Ify Wadiway, the host of Maximum Film. I'm Alonzo Duralde, also the host of Maximum Film. And I'm Drea Clark, yet another host of Maximum Film. Every week, we hosts huddle up. Usually with an illustrious guest. And we talk about films. We have film news. We have film quizzes. We answer your film questions. It's like the maximum amount of film talk. That's why we call it Maximum Maximum Film. Film. (laughs) Maximum Film, the movie podcast that's not just a bunch of straight white guys. New episodes weekly on MaximumFun.org. And we are back. Kirk, Maddie, it's time for one more thing. Uh, (laughs) Kirk, Kirk, why don't I won't mention mine. Kirk, you can go first. Okay, I'm, I'm, I'll go first with a book that I am reaching the very end of that is a fantastic book that a lot of people probably know by an author who will never be mentioned again on this podcast. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, just kidding. Uh, maybe he will be. Um, this is uh, Killers of the Flower Moon by David Gran, also known as uh, the author of The Lost City of Z, a previous One More Thing from Jason Schreier. Mm-hmm. And I had heard of Gran. I haven't read Lost City of Z, but I've, I knew this was a good book. My sister actually just gave me her copy and was like, dude, you have to read this book. It's incredible. Mm-hmm. And um, also, as it happens, Martin Scorsese is adapting it into a film that's coming out next month. So yeah, it'll be out as really it happens so, yes. with Leo DiCaprio. Yeah. Oh, yeah. A stacked cast in that, of course, because yeah, Scorsese. Course, yeah. movie. Um, so this is a, a great book uh, that I'm sure a lot of listeners are familiar with. It came out in 2017, was a real sensation. Um, and yet I had not read it. And I would imagine I'm also not alone in that. Um, I didn't 
start reading it because the movie is coming out. But I would guess there's a lot of people reading it for that reason, too. Um, so I really do wholeheartedly recommend this book. And it would probably be a good one to read before seeing the movie because I'm definitely going to watch the movie because uh, I think it'll probably be really good. So this is the story. The full title is, oh, now I'm forgetting the full title, but it's basically Killers of the Flower Moon, The Osage Murders, and the Founding of the FBI, something like that. Um, and it's the story of... Uh, the Osage people, a Native American tribe in Oklahoma, who were forcibly relocated, just like so many tribes over the course of the 19th century, and had their land kind of whittled away and taken away, but who managed to advocate for themselves in this one very specific way, where they established that their reservation, the land couldn't be divided up into parcels the way that a lot of other reservations were. So they owned the land and, crucially, they owned the mineral rights and basically everything under the land. The government didn't really care at the time. They were like, whatever, fine. Like they basically had moved, of course, moved them onto like the rockiest, crappiest land in Oklahoma and were like, all right, whatever, fine. So then, of course, they strike oil and it turns out to be the richest land in the whole country. And for a period of time, the Osage people are the richest people per capita in the world, I think. I think that's the statistic. Um, then, of course... The story from there is this like story of just injustice after injustice after injustice. This just infuriating story of the government finding all of these ways to come between people and money that was legally theirs according to a, you know, an agreement that the government entered with them, the United States government. Mm -hmm. But of course, when lawyers start getting involved and you start finding ways to trick people, you can kind of start just, you know, essentially imposing your will just like people did taking their land from them by force. It was the same kind of thing. That is the backdrop for this story. But we get to the 1920s, and that's kind of where this story starts, with a rash of murders that becomes a kind of a true crime mystery story. And that's the hook of this story is you're watching as people are being murdered, Osage tribe members who are who have head what are called head rights, which means they like because they were born into the tribe, they like own a certain percentage of the money that of the oil money coming in every year, which is a lot of money. So they're like very, very wealthy people and they're being killed or they're dying under mysterious circumstances. And it starts to appear to be some sort of a vast conspiracy. So as a result, the Bureau of Investigation, before they were the FBI, this is under J. Edgar Hoover in the early 1920s, they send in an investigator because they have jurisdiction over Native American land. They don't have jurisdiction over very much because there's no like federal, like the Federal Bureau of Investigation, the way that you can be charged with a federal crime, that kind of was didn't work that way. But this is kind of the beginning of that. And it's Hoover sort of organizing the FBI into this new law enforcement apparatus. He sends this guy uh, named White, I forget his first name, but who's basically this old cowboy who's become an FBI agent out to run an investigation. So the middle part of the book is just the story of this investigation. And it's a real page turner. Like it's a really interesting um, mystery. But it never loses that edge, just the edge of the sort of horrible injustice that this whole thing is built on, of course, that our whole country is built on. And then it winds up really taking some surprising turns toward the end as Grant himself goes and researches the full scope of what was happening and the kind of like it really winds up just indicting all of America, like in this thing that, of course, America should be indicted for, like this original sin or one of the original sins of America's founding. So it's a great book. It's like 
It's a book that I think all high school students should read. This is the kind of thing that I just wish I'd known about when I was in high school and was learning American history. It's similar to the um, Tulsa Race Massacre that we've talked about at least, you know, talking about Watchmen Mm -hmm. um, or, you know, its depiction on TV shows. When Watchmen showed that, it was a similar thing where a lot of people didn't know that this had happened. And it's kind of a similar story where a minority group accumulates a lot of money and then... Just a bunch of white people basically decide that's not okay and just start killing folks. And, like, that's what happened here, too. Oklahoma, man. Got some got some history. Yeah. Yeah, but, I mean, and it's Oklahoma, but, it, of course, it is it is America. But, yeah, mm-hmm. a lot of bad stuff happened in Oklahoma. And so it, it is a great book, um, really just, like, an essential historical read and a really just well-put-together, well-written, well-researched just an absorbing um, historical tale. So I really recommend it, and I'm looking forward to the movie. So that's Killers of the Flower Moon by David Gran. Uh, very easy book to find and a worthy one to read. Well, cool. as it turns out, David Gran, he's got some <laughs> yeah. he's got some chops because my warmer thing is The Wager <laughs> by David Gran, which I finished a couple of weeks Welcome ago. Welcome to the Grand Cast, folks. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome back to the Grand Cast. Um, yeah, David Gran, he's he's quite a writer. Um, so yeah. this book, this is his latest book. It actually came out earlier this year, and um, it is another just riveting nonfiction story that is written like a like a novel because he just so heavily researched it and kind of pinpointed um, and recreated scenes from history in a really um, astonishingly interesting way. He's amazing at that. It's really Uh incredible. Yeah, Yeah. and something he does, which I really appreciate, a lot of um, nonfiction writers Mm -hmm. will recreate scenes with, like, fake dialogue and, like, put thoughts in their characters' heads, and I hate that. It's, like... None of that happened. People did not say it this way. This is not what happened. And the way right. David Grant does it is not like that. Like he, his quotes, when he quotes things, they are from primary sources, documents and logbooks and whatever. Um, and, and they are things that are actually, that actually should be quoted, like people's thoughts that they wrote down. And or he's whatever. very artful. Like he's very artful in the way that he evokes a scene or describes someone like returning home and driving across the land and the sun is setting a certain way where he's not saying what happened but he's kind of saying this is what it was what it was like there mm-hmm. and so he he isn't going so far as to paint a you know actually narrativize in a way that doesn't add up. Yes. It's really clever. He's a very, very thoughtful writer. Yes, and that's I agree. I thought about that a lot because I know that was a thing that bugs you. And now when I read nonfiction, I pay attention for it. Yeah, it's something to pay attention to. There's some books, um, I won't name names, but there's there some books that are just egregious about like totally like they shouldn't even yeah. be allowed to call nonfiction. I mean, like, um, I guess I will name names. There's like Ben Mesrick's right like book. Like I only think of this because that movie Dumb Money just came out based on the Wall Street story and Ben Mesrick. It's based on a Ben Mesrick book uh, that was totally fictionalized anyway the wager um so the wager is the story the wager the wager opens up with setting the scene by saying that like this little town in chile um these people they see this like little like flot flotsam like come by and a bunch of people come off it and they say they're survivors of a shipwreck that landed like miles and miles away um and they all are returned to their home in britain and and kind of are are return return to their families um, and then six months later, another piece of wreckage comes by and some more people get off and they're like, hey, those guys who came six months ago were were mutineers and they like uh, rebelled against their captain. And that's that's setting the scene for this book. And so the book is about a ship called The Wager that is part of this questionable name for a ship. Ships. I got to say it is. <laughs> uh, it's called part of part of this fleet of ships that is a uh, an, a British expedition. British is fighting this war against Spain in the 1700s. I believe it's 1730s 
or something like that. Um, and uh, they send this ship to go and steal treasure from a Spanish galleon in a mission of like uh, stealth and subterfuge. They want it to be totally, uh, uh, they want Spain to be caught unawares. And along the way, they run into all sorts of problems, catastrophe, and the wager, the ship, winds up shipwrecked on an island where they have to spend months like in true hell like this this island that has no food and um total awful weather conditions and they like have to build a life out of it and so the book is kind of set in these scenes of like first you see the ship and you learn about ships and then you you learn about the voyage they took and and then you learn about what happens on the island and all the drama that goes in there. And then the third part of the book is what happens when they return and the kind of the, the court uh, hearings they had to face as a result of their actions. They had to deal with the consequences of their actions on the island and on the ship. And the reason it's so riveting is because David Grant found these log books from um, a handful of characters, three main ones, including this one guy, John Byron, who would be the grandfather or great grandfather of the poet of the name Byron, Lord Byron. Wow. Um, oh. And so these log books managed to uh, tell each cast, each of these like um, crew members version of the story and also create them as characters because by reading these log books, David Grant could figure out like Man. what they were thinking and what made them This tick. is some real Oprah Din shit. Yeah. It's very Oprah Din. Do you think that David Grant has played Return of the Oprah Din? <laughs> I don't know. It's a great question. But yeah, it's fascinating. It is a fantastic, fantastic book. And it's nice and short. doesn't overstay its welcome. It just zips through stuff. Really, really interesting uh, book. And to your point, Kirk, and kind of similarly to Killers of the Flower Moon, it does what the best nonfiction stories do, which is it tells a story that's about, that's greater than the events that just happen here. And Mm -hmm. Um, there are some themes, not heavy handed, but he does talk about this a couple of times about the colonialism of the English and the problems that that caused and the reasons that they like how this all played into that and the imperialism and this belief that all of the sailors had that they were like on this crusade and this grand mission that was greater than them and even on the island they like ran into some uh natives from nearby who like knew how to survive the harshness of that land um and could have potentially helped them but i won't spoil exactly what happens but Mm. yeah i mean british colonialism no good but this story extremely good the wager (laughs) david gran i recommend both books i have also read killers of the flower moon both books are fantastic so go read them both Maddie, what's your one more thing? What's your one more grand? So but, Lost City of Z by David Grant. <laughs> <laughs> it's not Lost City of Z. Imagine if it happened. Uh, that would have been great. Um, I I didn't know we were doing this. It could have happened, honestly. It I would have put it past us it to happened. accidentally all pick a book so by the same funny. guy. I, sadly, no. Sadly, I read a book by Zakia Delilah Harris, which is called The Other Black Girl. The reason I read this, similar to you, Kirk, in that there's a movie coming out about the book you read. I don't oh. know if that was part of what motivated you, Um, but there is No, a, I didn't even know. A but, Hulu yeah. show that is already completed because I think they just put up all the episodes in one one go called The Other Black Girl and I saw the trailer for it great trailer haven't watched the show I just watched the trailer and saw that it was based on a book and I was like I think I'd really like this book actually mm. so I'm going to go ahead and get this book and see if I like that before I watch this show and then I devoured the book in like two days because it's a thriller oh, a good sign. and um, so I, I don't I, I don't want to spoil the book 
but it's pretty simple in that it's kind of similar to the Stepford Wives in that it's like a science fiction premise where you like kind of have these marginalized, this marginalized class of people, in this case, it's specifically black women uh, who are working in a white dominated publishing house in New York City. Uh, This is a very New York City kind of a book. Um, And much like the Stepford Wives, uh, one of them becomes very suspicious of the other one and like a science fiction type of a way and is like, what is really going on? with this person. Um, and the book is like, so it just sort of unfolds from there. And that's the kind of sci-fi premise that I, I really love. I talked about they clone Tyrone on this show and how much I enjoyed that movie. And I think the step for wives, like the original stories is wonderful. Um, any kind of science fiction where there's clones or people are getting replaced or like brainwashed or something I'm always fascinated by. Cause it's, it's always sort of evocative of like real life social parallels and like why we do and don't trust other people. And um, so this book's very fun in that regard. I will say probably it's only flaw that I would say is still something that makes it extremely fun to read is just that it's very focused on New York media personalities, be they bloggers, writers, publishing house workers, that whole world. It's oh, so the it's, most interesting people. Yeah, the, the most people interesting that everybody people in the entire universe. Are so interesting. The people, oh, okay, sure. the people who maybe you might create a sci-fi conspiracy about in order to uh, rule the world, for example. Like, it, there is a piece mm. of it where I'm like, would would anyone actually care to do that? I'm not sure. Would they maybe instead <laughs> do something like this in Washington, D.C.? I don't know. The book doesn't quite get into that territory because it's like a little too lighthearted for that. I think to its benefit, um, because it's just kind of like, look, it sucks to work in these kinds of knowledge jobs that are like really high stress, tons and tons of hours, super hyper competitive, especially the few marginalized people who get these roles end up being intercompetitive in ways that are really toxic. And right. that is, that's very much what the book is about. That's the title, yes, right? The other one. Of course. Yeah, exactly. It's sense. like, oh, this is the one other person at the job mm-hmm. who everyone's going to mix me up with, etc. Um, and that's like really what the point of the book is. But yeah, I think maybe you enjoy it a little more if you're a writer who lives in a major <laughs> city in the United States. But maybe you enjoy it if you're not one of those people. But yeah, it was it was it went down real easy. And I thought the ending was really fascinating. And I'd like more people to read it so I could talk to them about it, especially since I've already read because I'm the kind of person who does this. That the Hulu show changes the ending. Yeah. Oh. So I'm I'm like, great, everyone needs to read the book and then watch the show and then we can all discuss it. <laughs> my my wife loved the book. You can text her. Yeah. Okay, great. I'll um, I'll contact her. Yeah. <laughs> no She's surprise. I, I, I feel like in, in her case she'd be like, Well, why wasn't this book written about competitive law firms? Which was the mm. thought I also had reading it. I was like, surely. Similar. Similar yeah, industries very, in a lot of very ways. Similar. But yeah, the other black girl, really cool book. <laughs> Except for the pay. <laughs> I similar know. industries and in every way except the one that matters yeah (laughs) (laughs) yeah 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 i guess so but yeah that's my one more thing cool awesome well that is it for this week's episode thank you all for listening kirk manny i will see you both next week yeah see you both next week bye Triple Click is produced by Jason Schreier, Maddie Myers, and me, Kirk Hamilton. I edit and mix the show and also wrote our theme music. Our show art is by Tom DJ. Some of the games and products we talked about on this episode may have been sent to us for free for review consideration. You can find a link to our ethics policy in the show notes. Triple Click is a proud member of the Maximum Fun Podcast Network, and if you like our show, we hope you'll consider supporting us by becoming a member at MaximumFun.org join. 
Find us on Twitter at TripleClickPods and email the TripleClick at MaximumFun.org and find a link to our Discord in the show notes. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Maximum Fun, a worker-owned network of artist-owned shows, supported directly by you.